Thank you for that kind introduction. Thank you to the Board of Regents for sponsoring this event. And the other event we, um, we had in San Francisco with the Archbishop Cordelion. I have to admit that I saw some of the advertisements for this afternoon's talk. I actually heard some of the uh, radio advertisements on uh, Immaculate Heart Radio. And actually, I got kind of seduced. I said, this sounds kind of interesting. I think I should go. <laughs> but it's, um, it's generally not my style. I think these kinds of talks, it's all about managing expectations. And in my case, it's trying to make those expectations as low as possible. So at the end of the day, you walk away thinking, well, that's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. So I thought I should try to get back to that mode a little bit and tell you about my efforts when I try to become sophisticated. I was... Um, I was educated. I went to uh, Laval University, where I pursued my PhD in philosophy, and they had the uh, kind of annoying habit of speaking French there. And I didn't know any French at all, and I lived in a rectory, and the nuns would come in every morning and they would serve us food. And I had an arrangement with this sweet, sweet nun that she would speak to me in French and I would speak to her in English so we could learn each other's language. But there was one time, I think I was getting a little puffed up. I thought I was really understanding this language. I was going to break out on my own. And so she asked me, did I have enough, did I have enough to eat? And I responded in my best French idiom, oui, je suis plein. And she started to laugh. And I was wondering, why is this sweet none laughing at me and it turns out that's an idiom I am pregnant <laughs> and it's particularly said of domestic animals <laughs> so that's what you should really be expecting anytime I try to get sophisticated it goes wrong quickly now my position might seem paradoxical that any effect of new evangelization will be successful if we look back to the great intellectual patrimony of the church. And if we realize that many of the current popular atheists are more virulent than ever in their attacks on religion. Our opponents think that religion is bad for everyone, bad for children, bad for society. They will not be content to disagree politely so our best tactic is to be well prepared and to defend the richness of our faith. But I want to contest that the best way to do that is to look backwards before we look forwards. As James pointed out, I took as the prompting of my talk this book, which is very well reviewed. You'll see it in many bookstores, usually under the science section, called The God Delusion. And I thought I'd begin by reading some of the reviewers' comments on this book. So, for example, in the Times Literary Supplement, we, we hear, The God Delusion deserves multiple readings, not just as an important work of science, but as a great work of literature. Or the Mail in, in uh, the United States, or United Kingdom, the Mail on Sunday wrote, 
the most coherent and devastating indictment of religion we have ever read. The New York Times, lots of good, hard-hitting stuff about the imbecilities of religious fanatics and frauds of all types. Or how about this? Oh, it's so refreshing after being told all your life that it is virtuous to be full of faith, spirit, and superstition, to read such a resounding trumpet blast for truth instead. It feels like coming up for air. Another reviewer, a magnificent book, lucid and wise, truly magisterial. Somewhat comical, isn't it? So, my view, in short, is I think Dawkins, people of his stripe, make fundamental errors. So the question might be, why does this matter for you and for me? Because if I'm right, if he's not a good philosopher, if he's grossly unfair when it comes to any serious theological argument, why waste our time? Why take him seriously? Wouldn't it be better to ignore him? I think not. I think if we ignore him and his position, we do so at our peril. For the times we live in are formed by popular arguments, not by precise scientific considerations. It is my view that the position of Dawkins and others will be persuasive to many, and that as a result, the anti-religious positions he advocates will become more mainstream. The effect will be felt in schools and the public square. Consider these words written 400 years before Christ by Plato. In the mouth of Socrates, he says this, When you buy food and drink, you can carry it away from the shop or warehouse in a receptacle. And before you receive it into your body, by eating or drinking, you can store it away at home and take the advice of an expert as to what you should eat and drink and what not, and how much you should consume and when. So there is not much risk in the actual purchase. But knowledge cannot be taken away in a parcel. When you have paid for it, you must receive it straight into your soul. You go away having learned it and are benefited or harmed accordingly. It's my view that teachers, especially public teachers, will be formed by the view of Dawkins and the new atheists. They will accept it and they will preach it with a kind of religious fervor. Most of us are affected by contemporary thinking, and we're hardly aware of it. It is even more that way for the young. So as the new atheists become more and more embedded in our culture, we need to have a strategy to encounter it. It seems to me that many of our Catholic schools are not prepared for the upcoming challenge. So my thesis can be stated briefly. The best way to resist the new wave of religious criticism, the best way for you and for me, is to be aware of basic philosophical principles 
and some fundamental theological distinctions, and these principles have a kind of perennial or unchanging character. They're not outdated, even if they were articulated centuries ago. More particularly, Christians should become more aware of our own intellectual patrimony and especially aware of the basic views of the doctors of the church. So let me begin with a little preliminary and then move on to Dawkins more particularly. It might seem strange that I advocate looking back to the great thinkers, especially the great thinkers centuries ago, in order to equip ourselves for a contemporary discussion about the new atheism. However, the reason why the earlier thinkers deserve particular attention is that they understood the first things. Their starting points are not determined by time and place, hence they are not special to them, nor are they in any way technical. That's why I think this approach is good for you and me. We do not have to be scientists to engage in this discussion. They're eminently accessible, these principles, to us, since with reflection we can see the reasonableness of these principles. Few of us, as, as I say, are scientists. Many of us cannot study the intricate details of contemporary physics, chemistry, and biology that are proposed as the basis of the new atheism. However, all of us, scientists and laymen alike, have access to these perennial principles, these unchanging principles, because they're derived from ordinary experience. That's why Cardinal Newman said about Aristotle that he has told us the meaning of our words and ideas before we were born. Let me repeat that. It's a, it's a beautiful saying. He, Aristotle, living 300 years before Christ, has told us the meaning of our words and ideas before we were born. For he has taken as the beginning of his inquiries principles that transcend his own particular experience and has identified the common principles of the human mind, principles that are rooted in the most basic judgments about the way things are. Consequently, we are able to judge the veracity or truth of these starting points. You and me, we can judge those. And Mortimer Adder also brings this to our attention. He says, quote, In an effort to understand nature, society, and man, Aristotle began where everyone should begin, with what he already knew in the light of ordinary, commonplace experience. So what I have said about Aristotle can be applied to many of the great thinkers of old. So the first point. Although most of us are not scientists, we should be confident that we have a role to play in the contemporary discussion with the new atheists. Another preliminary. There's a natural order of knowing. The assumption of a common experience and of common conceptions about it belong not only to men living in the same era, but also to men of all ages, in all ages, as is shown by the very writing of what James referred to as the great books. 
When men come to reflect upon their knowledge of reality, they are already possessors of it, and their reflective and methodical elaborations of it do not destroy this possession unless they fail to build their science upon it. Dawkins' approach to the big questions is unsatisfying in one way because he thinks that the only legitimate intellectual response is to look to particular scientific judgments. He denies what I have just contended, that one must begin with common experience, common considerations that are pre-scientific. For example, he denies that the question of purpose is meaningful. To ask the question why about creation is really, in his words, to ask how things came about. One way Dawkins shows this is to take more obscure cases as if they should set the standard for explanation. So in a a debate with Cardinal Pell in Australia, he, Dawkins, suggested that if, as the Cardinal asserted, natural things exist and act for a purpose, then the Cardinal would have to be able to explain what the purpose of mountains is. But this is the wrong approach. It denies the more evident because of the less well-known. Another way of putting this point is that our everyday experience that natural things act for a reason and for a purpose should incline us to be skeptical about the universal claim that there's no purpose in nature, especially if that view is derived from very particular, scientific, and somewhat obscure considerations. Another corollary that some of the new atheists draw from their own position is that human life does not have any intrinsic meaning. That is, we all have to make up our own meaning, our own purpose for life. All of us should be hesitant to adopt such a view because our basic experience of life suggests that that is false. As a consequence, we should reconsider any position that suggests that human life does not have meaning. Okay, so let me raise one caution. No doubt left to ourselves, just you and me, we would discover some truths on our own, particularly if we were attentive to the common conceptions and experience from which knowledge proceeds. But in general, we all need guides. We all need to be taught. We all need teachers. We can't figure things out simply by ourselves. And it's also the case that if our teachers are corrupt, especially if they're bright, they can give us many reasons why we second-guess our best judgments. We think we have the right starting points, and we can be talked out of it. In short, it seems like since we're all fallible, there's no foolproof way of judging between good and bad thinkers, good and bad thinking. And it's true, there is no escaping the fact that he who desires to know something must also have some kind of faith in those he regards as teachers or as guides. 
he must trust that his teachers have an adequate grasp of the way things are, that there's an order of learning, and that one can be led to knowledge of the truth. To come to know, he must then begin with a kind of faith. But if one begins in faith, if one does not at first know whether the teacher's way is the way towards the truth, does the entire effort of learning, since it depends upon that beginning, become a matter of faith? Here is where the Christians have the advantage. For God has chosen to reveal truths to us, and our Lord Jesus Christ, while on earth, established his church and charged her to go teach all the nations. The church is well aware of the importance of sound thinking for men and how it depends on a kind of trust. One way in which the church aids us as we search for truth and or search for teachers is that she points out intellectual positions that contradict the faith, the religious faith. And as a result, the Christian student has a kind of guide in his quest for knowledge. He knows when he has gone astray, at least when his straying has caused him to contradict the faith. Quoting John Paul II, It is the task of the magisterium, in the first place, to indicate which philosophical presuppositions and conclusions are incompatible with revealed truth, thus articulating the demands which faith's point of view makes of philosophy. So, since some degree of faith is necessary for those who desire to know, it is entirely appropriate that the Church should provide guidance, both negative and positive, for those who wish to understand. This is not to say that one can substitute faith for reason. The Church, in proposing to us teachers, expects us to turn to those teachers and with docile study try to learn from them in the manner appropriate to the discipline. The Church does not even speak in great detail about particular philosophical doctrines. She points to the teachers and expects those who are animated by wonder to follow them as masters. And she points to St. Thomas, St. Augustine, and many of the other doctors in particular. So, so much for the preliminary remarks. Now I want to return to the basic argument of this book and the, the view found here, but in other of the positions of the new atheists. So in this book, in The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins rejects absolutely everything that I've said so far. Well, maybe not my je suis plein. That does mean I am pregnant. <laughs> but everything else of substance, he rejects. He is critical of religious faith, not just religious extremism. And here he says, let me quote, Faith is an evil precisely because it requires no justification and brooks no argument. The problem is, he goes on to say, you don't have to make the case for what you believe. And finally, the higher one's intelligence or education level, the less one is likely to be religious or hold beliefs of any kind. 
But Dawkins doesn't just think that religion is for fools. He thinks it's dangerous. And that's why he calls it an evil. Later, I will return to his claims that only fools have faith. In addition to his ridicule about believers, Dawkins, Christian, Dawkins excuse me, criticizes particular Christian doctrine, and he does so in a number of ways. I thought I'd take a couple of examples. Because some of these examples show that he that, re, that revealed to me that he has a fundamental misunderstanding of what Christians, in fact, hold or should hold. And one of those errors is due to a misunderstanding, curiously, of his own science, a failure to understand the limits of natural science. So Dawkins says quite famously in this book, he says, I'm attacking God, any God, whether it be the Christian God, the Muslim God, whatever your view of God is, I'm attacking God, all gods, anything and everything supernatural. Now, why is he attacking any supernatural reality? He says, the existence of God is a scientific hypothesis, like any other. And later he says, if you ask this question, did Jesus have a human father? Or was his mother a virgin at the time of birth? Well, the question has to be answered in a strictly scientific way. And what does that mean? Well, he makes it clear a little later that the only way to answer the question about the virgin birth, about Jesus' patrimony, would be to engage in a DNA test. One last quotation makes the point clear. The methods we should use to settle the matter would be purely and entirely scientific methods. So the first point I want to make is here we have the new atheist. The claim is, all right, you Christians, you hold these supernatural doctrines, but to the extent that they're going to be reasonable, they have to be subject to the scrutiny of natural, empirical science. I'd like to contrast that view with St. Thomas Aquinas' view about the nature of the science of, excuse me, the mission of the science of nature. The natural sciences he says, concern natural bodies that are susceptible to analysis and experience and experimentation. So, much of contemporary science, we see, is so complex due to the mathematical analysis that, it, that underlies it, but still this mathematical analysis must be grounded in some return to natural phenomena by way of experimentation. It is no wonder, then, that scientists who demand this approach, uh, that this approach constitutes the only genuine understanding of things, would reject the doctrine of the soul or the existence of God because there's no scientific evidence for such beings. Can you imagine trying to fabricate some experiment that's going to settle that question? But notice... In this case, no scientific evidence must mean no experimental approach to these kinds of questions. The question of the soul, the question of the virgin birth, the question of God's existence, the question of God's simplicity. 
However, not all scientists have such an overinflated view about the reach of the experimental sciences. It was over 50 years ago that Werner Heisenberg, the father of quantum physics, delivered the prestigious Gifford Lectures. In one of those lectures, he said the following, The general trend of human thinking has been toward an increasing confidence in the scientific method and in precise rational terms, and has led to a general skepticism with regard to those concepts of natural language which do not fit into the closed frame of scientific thought. For instance, those of religion. Existing scientific concepts cover always only a very limited part of reality. We know that any understanding must be based finally upon natural language because it is only there that we can be certain to touch reality. So unlike Dawkins, Heisenberg understands the limits of natural science and the value of basic pre-scientific understanding and other approaches to the world, including the religious approach. A more contemporary voice is Dr. Leon Cass, who I recommend very strongly. He's very helpful in understanding the limits of modern science, particularly modern biology. And he puts his point very succinctly. Drunk on the success of biochemical analysis and molecular genetics, some scientists are predicting, for example, that human love will soon have a chemical explanation. Biologists will isolate that putative small molecule located in the brain, whose concentrations soar when someone falls in love. Or again, we are told that knowing the chemical sequence of the human genome will reveal the secrets of human life. Extreme reductionists go still further. They not only explain the being and workings of wholes in terms of parts, they claim that the whole exists only to serve the part. But is this true of life as lived? Cass is right to insist that we should not be seduced by the splendor of science to give up our everyday experience of life. He insists, again I quote, our current evolutionary orthodoxy has in fact little to say about the true origin of life or about ultimate causes, not only of life but of all major biological novelty. It cannot account for the emergence of higher organisms who often seem more engaged with mediated activity than with the necessities of survival and reproduction. Think, for example, of the play of kittens and monkeys or the frolicking of otters and sea lions. Because of the biochemical approach to life and living activities, Modern biology will never be able to tell us what life is, what is responsible for it, or what it is for. Let me stress, now modern science is very worthwhile, but it is also limited to some aspects of reality. It tends to focus on very particular natural phenomena that are susceptible to experimentation and mathematical analysis.
let me further stress that this analysis of matter does not require one to be a materialist. If one restricts knowledge to the kind of science that approaches nature by way of experimentation, then one is limiting understanding to matter. It is crucial to see that the understanding of the new atheists rests on a radical materialism. Cass puts it this way, Under the reigning orthodoxy that is modern science, to think teleological thoughts, that is, things act for a purpose, about nature, is to be guilty of heresy. There is a rejection from the outset of all explanations in terms of ends or purposes, and also notions of the causal status and dignity of form. And so modern science continues on its mechanistic and materialistic journey. Since Dawkins has brought into the has bought into the notion that knowledge of nature is equivalent to the modern scientific approach to nature, it is not surprising to hear Dawkins say that notions such as substance, essence, person mean very little, if anything at all. So my first criticism is this. To the extent that one expects the empirical and experimental knowledge to be the measure of all knowledge, one becomes a kind of materialist, and that position is false. It is wrong to claim, as the materialists do, that the source of life within us, the soul, if you want, is a material thing. There's a principle articulated many centuries ago that shows why the, why the soul cannot be material. This sounds complicated, but I don't think it is. Here's the principle. That which, according to its nature, is different from something else cannot be the thing from which it differs. Again, sounds complicated. Let me read it again. That which, according to its nature, is different from something else cannot be the thing from which it differs. For example, Adam and Eve are both human beings. So being human can't distinguish them. Clearly, Adam is not Eve. Eve is not Adam. So what distinguishes them cannot be what they have in common. Similarly, living bodies and non-living bodies are both bodies. That's what they have in common. And neither the living body nor the non-living thing is more a body than the other. So if living bodies are different kind of bodies than non-living bodies, what makes them different cannot be a body. The principle of life within each of us That which makes living things to be living cannot be bodily. This is an appeal to reason, not to faith, a sign of which is that the pagan Socrates recognized that his death would be a fresh beginning, not the end of his existence. And centuries before Socrates, Genesis also revealed this truth. Man is not only created from the dust of the earth, but he's also made in the image and likeness of God. This divine light within us, the soul, cannot be a bodily thing. So we have here, I think, 
an example of the wonderful harmony between faith and reason. Reason shows us the error of a radical materialism, and the man of faith sees it too. So it's important for us to note that radical materialism is not a scientific conclusion. It's a, it's a philosophical position, and no scientific evidence can prove that matter alone explains life or consciousness or the origin of the universe and so on. Materialism is a philosophical position and a false one at that. A second fundamental error in this book is concerning causality. It's a very common mistake. The presumption is made that because you've discovered the natural cause of some phenomenon, there is no other cause for that same phenomenon. In his book, another book called The Blind Watchmaker, Dawkins makes it clear that he thinks any genuine evolutionary view must be a rival to the doctrine of divine creation. In his chapter entitled Doomed Rivals, he's not very subtle, by the way, uh, he says, of all the alleged alternatives to the theory of natural selection, the oldest one is a theory that life was created by a conscious designer. Again, he says, it would obviously be unfairly easy to demolish some particular version of this theory, such as the one spelled out in Genesis. Now, I think that remark shows a number of crude misunderstandings, but the first one is his assumption that whatever else you say about evolution, even if it is a natural explanation of the origin of the body, it's not a rival to the view found in Genesis. St. Thomas Aquinas, again here, can be helpful. He shows that it is not strange to claim that, quote, the same effect is ascribed to a natural cause and to God, not as though part were affected by God and another part by the natural agent, but the whole effect proceeds from each, but in different ways. What he means by this is that there can be several causes of any particular effect, but there's some relation between the causes. A simple example might help. The baseball player who hits a home run. Well, clearly the baseball player is the cause of the home run. He produced it. But he didn't produce it without the baseball bat. And so you would say that the baseball bat clearly is a cause, too, of the home run. He couldn't hit it without the baseball bat. The baseball bat couldn't produce it without the baseball player. Or a better example might be that a general is the cause of a military victory. But his troops are also causes. The troops are active in bringing about the victory. They do the fighting. He might be sitting on a horse or in a tank. But they did what they did under the direction of the general. Both are causes of the victory. Now, again, oversimplification, no doubt. In the case of God, he does not need inferior causes to produce any effect. But it's out of his goodness he gives the power of causality to others. Real causality to real natural agents. 
the inferior cause really and truly is the cause of what it produces, even if God empowers that cause. Now, what follows from that point? It's a mistake for the new atheists to think that just by discovering real natural causes of natural phenomena, that they have discovered all the causes that are at work. There is no need to choose between a natural explanation based on observation and experimentation and a religious account of the universe that depends on God as an omnipotent creator. Again, compare this point that I just made to Dawkins' words. He says, A deep understanding of Darwinism teaches us to be wary of the easy assumption that design is the only alternative to chance and teaches us to seek out graded ramps of slowly increasing complexity. Natural selection not only explains the whole of life, it also raises our consciousness to the power of science to explain how organized complexity can emerge from simple beginnings without any deliberate guidance. So if we understand that God, the creator of heaven and earth, is not a competing cause with nature, we can avoid the mistakes of the new atheists who think that just because science discovers natural causes that they have discovered every explanation of the way things are. A different source of error or errors found in the position of the new atheists is due to a misunderstanding of theological doctrine. I will touch on these very briefly. Finally, there's a disdain for religion and for religious folks, so they don't take any time to study the theological positions. As a result of Dawkins' materialism, he is incapable of grasping that God could be the intelligent, omnipotent cause of the universe without being complex, sophisticated. Dawkins argues God would have to be so complex that he would need a cause for his complexity. That simply doesn't follow. Dawkins assumes that the simple is prior to the complex. And that's true, at least up to a point. But it's not true in the way that Dawkins understands the terms simple and complex. Hydrogen and oxygen are simple compared with the complexity of water. But that's a material simplicity and complexity. Human beings are immensely complex materially. And God is better than us but not because he's more complex. God, although intelligent, omnipotent, and good, is eminently simple. Why? Because he's not material, and because he's first in the order of causality. Further, Dawkins ventures boldly into an interpretation of Scripture only to reveal that he is ignorant of the most serious students of the Bible, St. Augustine and St. Thomas, to name a few. In particular, Dawkins thinks that a literal reading of Genesis means that it is to be read historically or scientifically. However, a literal interpretation is simply 
what the principal author, God, intends to signify. That's the view of Augustine. That's the view of St. Thomas. So, for example, when we read in Scripture the hand of God, etc., etc., clearly the hand of God means literally the divine power. And the days of creation that are spoken of in Genesis or the light that was created need not signify a period of time or a physical illumination. And here, Dawkins is simply at a disadvantage. He doesn't take scripture seriously, and therefore he doesn't really read it carefully. So, I'd like to return to a general, the general criticism that faith, most of us here, I, I take it, are believers, so this is coming right at you, that faith is irrational, that we're fools to believe. I want to defend religious faith, and I want to do so not because I have it, because I think it's right, it's necessary, it's natural, and it's reasonable to believe. So let me defend that thesis briefly. I think it begins, that defense, by being clear on what you mean by the word faith or belief. And I think it's important to note this. Faith differs from knowledge and from opinion. I can say, for example, I believe it is raining. Or I can say, I know that it is raining. Knowledge depends upon evidence. I know something if I have evidence that it is so. If the curtains are open, all I need to do is to look outside to know whether it is raining or not. Faith, on the other hand, requires that I accept something because it has been told to me. One cannot have knowledge and faith about the same thing. So it's absurd to say faith is irrational. One cannot have knowledge and faith about the same thing. Belief involves accepting something as true because one has been told without knowing the evidence for the truth. It's a kind of trust. It has been described by St. Augustine this way. Faith is the virtue by which what is not seen is believed. Since one is accepting something to be true without direct evidence, there can be reasonable and unreasonable faith, however. If someone tells me it is raining, and I've just come in from a cold, overcast fall day, it would be reasonable to believe that it is raining outside. When I come in on a day such as today, that's hot, dry, and cloudless, it would be unreasonable to believe. Therefore, even though belief differs from knowledge, for knowledge is direct evidence, but faith does not, still, there are ways to judge whether one's faith is reasonable or not. So let me begin by making this distinction. There are two kinds of faith, human faith and religious faith. Human faith is based on human testimony and is about natural affairs. Religious faith concerns God. Religious faith has to be at least, at least, a belief that God exists, that God created us, that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, and that God has a plan for us. Now, we'll return to religious faith in a moment, but let's think about something that's more known to us, which is 
human faith. I said earlier that faith is necessary, natural, and reasonable. And I mean that about religious faith, but it's more obvious that it's true about human faith. Human faith is necessary, natural, and reasonable. And of course, if someone believes just anyone or anything indiscriminately, that would be unreasonable. I remember, remember once seeing this advertisement, which I thought was somewhat cheeky but very crafty. They were advertising genuine faux pearls. <laughs> and I thought, That's taking advantage of people who don't know what the word faux means. So I returned them. (laughs) So let's consider two examples to show that accepting something without evidence is not contrary to reason. The first example, if you're in an unfamiliar town, you need to meet someone at some place, you don't know how to get there, you don't have GPS, now it's getting complicated. What do you do? Well, you need to ask someone for directions. Now consider, you don't know how to get to the place. So you're going to ask someone to direct you. Once you're given directions, do you know how to get there? I say not. You're following something, someone on the basis of trust. You're believing the person who gave you the directions... And such trust, at least in general, is reasonable. Now, if I can digress for a moment. You mentioned, uh, James, I was born in Ireland. I lived there for 16 years. The Irish are very funny people in a lot of ways. I mean funny in every meaning of the word funny, too. Um, You get lost in Ireland, and you ask someone how to get someplace, almost invariably, they'll they'll tell you, oh, you can't get there from here. And it's just like... How can that be true? How can that be possible? How can I be so lost that it's impossible in principle to get there from here? And it took me a long time to figure it out. But the Irish refused to go take a U-turn. They refused to turn around. That, that explains... That's, that tells you more about the Irish than you need to know, perhaps. I want to give another example to show that faith, and this again is human faith, is necessary, natural, and reasonable. Most of us are not doctors. We're not skilled physicians. And even doctors are not skilled in every branch of medicine. So when the patient goes to the doctor, he cannot know that what the doctor is doing or the medicine that he's prescribing is what is best for him. How could the sick person be sure that the medication is good? After all, it usually tastes bad. And even more, what about if the doctor recommends surgery? Surgery is painful. Why would anyone undergo surgery if he's unsure whether this is going to help? Yet, in some cases, the patient literally puts his life in the hands of another. Now, Is the right approach in these cases to study medicine? To give give up maybe four or six years of your life to learn about medication? How to to heal those who are inflicted with the disease you have? I think not. Doesn't everyone realize that one has to trust? One trusts the doctor. 
And this, in this case, the patient is exhibiting faith. He believes what he is being told, and he will even undergo hardship on account of this faith. And because the patient is not a doctor, he must trust the doctor, or the pharmacist, or the surgeon. He must believe. So it's not hard to see in these examples, all involving human faith, that human faith is necessary, it's natural, and it's reasonable. St. Thomas says this, that no man can suffice for himself. Because one does not know the place to where you're going. Because one does not know what ails you and what can cure you. Because we cannot be sufficient for ourselves. We must believe others. That's the basis of human community. And it is natural. Children are born into a family. They naturally trust those who provide for them. That is, we are born such that we trust our parents. It's natural to have this belief. It's also natural that we live in society. Now, if you'll indulge me with one more story, this belief can go, can go awry. I remember, oh, it's probably six or seven years ago now, that my wife and I took the children to confession. We have a number of children. We were standing in line. And after we all went to confession, the youngest who wasn't you know, of the age to go to confession came back and started crying in the pew. And I said, honey, what's wrong? And she said, I wanted to go to the bathroom too. <laughs> now, what trust? You think, you know, we, we have perfectly functioning bathrooms at home. Why would we have to get in the car and just believes? She just believes. Finally, it's reasonable to believe. If one only acted when you knew something to be the case, you would quickly perish. It's only reasonable to trust those who provide food, directions, etc. So let me apply that to religious faith. Religious faith is necessary. Suppose for a moment that God exists. What a world that would be, huh? God would be a creator, unlike any of the creatures that we are familiar with. God could not have a body, for that would limit him and make him like any other creature. If you suppose for a moment that such a God exists, you ought also to suppose that God would not be like any of his creatures. As a result, how could we come to know or be aware of his existence? God cannot be seen by us, cannot be directly experienced by us. His existence would not be immediately evident to us. Nor could any science lab perform any experiment that would reveal God to us. It would be necessary then that if God exists, we would come to know him by faith, just as we come to know some new place by believing in the words or directions of another. Generally then, if God exists, it would be necessary that most of us approach him by faith, since we do not have direct evidence of his existence. Now again, maybe this is overly simple. It is, in fact, the case. There's a long line of famous thinkers, St. Thomas, first among many, that actually proposed coherent proofs that God exists. 
But St. Thomas goes out of his way to say that even if one can prove that God exists, these proofs are difficult. Not many would be convinced by them. And they would only be convinced if they were convinced after a long period of time. But we need to know how to govern our lives and how to be related to God early. It would be appropriate then that if God exists, he would give us promptings and inclinations to dispose us to believe he exists. That's the first point. Second, it's perfectly natural that one believes in God. Human beings have a natural desire to know and a natural desire to be happy. These desires are satisfied not by any created thing. Those who seek happiness in physical pleasure or wealth or reputation are never satisfied by these things. Not to say they are bad, not at all, but they can't make us happy. In fact, if one seeks happiness in created things, one is left feeling unfulfilled. So the inclination to know, to be loved, to seek happiness are fundamental to our nature. Often it is these desires that incline us to seek God because we realize only God can fulfill these desires. Our natural inclination for happiness, then, suggests that it is perfectly natural to have religious faith. Finally, it's reasonable to believe. As said before, there is no direct evidence of God's existence. You cannot see or touch God. Still, if we look around us, if we reflect on nature, if we look within, there are signs that point to God. Just as it is reasonable to believe someone who says it is raining because you had previously noticed that it was cold, overcast, and so on, so too is it reasonable to believe that God exists. The archaeologist, for example, who discovers a piece of pottery can reasonably conclude that it was produced by civilized people, and so on. So too the beauty, the order, the complexity of nature, along with the remarkable powers we have of knowing and loving, point to a power that crafted these things. As the astronomer Hoyle said, the natural phenomenon suggests a super-intellect responsible for it all. So compare how one judges reasonableness of human faith with that of religious faith. As you follow directions given to you, if all the street signs suggest the opposite, then it would be unreasonable to believe. Or if a student is coming to know things and the things that the student is learning do not contradict common sense, then it's reasonable for him to trust the, that education. If one is following the doctor's orders and getting better, it is reasonable to believe the doctor and the treatment. But if one is getting sicker and sicker, maybe, it's not reasonable to believe in that case. Religious faith is the same way. There is evidence that it is reasonable to believe. Nature points to a God, and other things do not satisfy us. Finally, St. Thomas is famous for his five proofs for the existence of God, but before these proofs, he considers objections to what one might call the atheist's position that it is 
not reasonable to accept that God exists. Now notice here, St. Thomas goes out of his way to give the atheists their say. He puts their positions better than they do themselves. Not so Dawkins. Dawkins ridicules those of faith. So these are the two difficulties that St. Thomas himself raises. First is the problem of evil. God is presumably infinitely infinite goodness, but the manifest evil in the world is incompatible with infinite goodness. Therefore, God does not exist. Or, natural causes can explain everything. Therefore, there's no need to say that God exists. But, St. Thomas responds to those objections also. He says that evil does not prove that God does not exist. Double negative there. Granted, it's hard to understand. But is the non-believer any better off? If God did away with evil, what would be the cost? No free will? No hardships? Would that make us better? Again, the problem of evil is really difficult to understand, but it is no proof that there is no God. Furthermore, St. Thomas's view that the secondary causes must be real causes of what they produce, gives some way of understanding, some way of understanding how God would permit evil because of his respect for the free agency of his creation. And also given his omniscient providence, he orders all things to the ultimate good in very mysterious ways. On the other hand, the second objection, natural causes can explain everything, To say that matter, natural mechanisms, natural powers can explain everything is at least a debatable point, if not a doubtful one. St. Thomas responds quite simply. Every natural being is changeable and corruptible, so natural things cannot explain their own existence and their own power. However true it is that natural phenomena can be explained in terms of natural causes, there is still a need of a self-sufficient first cause, the cause of causes, God himself. Now, the two most look forward to words in any talk to conclude. (laughs) We should be confident in the face of the next wave of challenges that will come to us from the new atheists. We should follow the advice given in the first letter of St. Peter. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you. Thank you.